I, I think since all of these things are somehow connected to music and artistry, it's just a natural element of joy that's instilled in there. And whether mm -hmm. I'm like switching in between these gigs that I that I hold and have held has always been the reason why I could do it for such a long time maybe because it never got boring. Like maybe I was on tour with the rapper for three weeks, four weeks straight, then come back home. Of course you miss touring and you miss the, the daily adrenaline rush when get going on stage, but mm -hmm. then you're back home and you can focus on other things like doing radio shows or starting to play clubs again, which is totally different than being on stage with an artist. And I think the, the constant change has, has been the, the reason why I'm still here. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that's the reason, yeah. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Foxtails. My name is Ivo, and I'll be your host today. For those of you who are just tuning in, uh, the Foxtails is a podcast created by a team at Stereofox, and it's a record of our journey in the music industry, both as a curator and a record label ourselves where we share our favorite artists and labels or talk to people from the industry we admire in order to discuss various topics which we hope you find useful. I'm super honored and very happy to introduce you to introduce to you our next guest who is someone I've been following for a while now. That's Philip Senkpil aka DJ Kitsune from Germany. And um, I was wondering how to make the intro because his bio is so extensive it might take me 20 minutes to just go over everything he has done which makes him actually such a cool guest to have as we can discuss a lot of topics. But in a, in a nutshell, he, he he's a radio host and a live DJ with more than 20 years of experience, also named best national DJ in Germany by hiphop.de. On top of that, he was two times national finalist on Red Bull 3 Style. And since, 2000, since the year 2000, he's the founder and CEO of Starting Lineup Records, where he was responsible for artist management, A&R, publishing and sync. Um, in 2018, he also joined a publishing venture with BMG Rights. And on top of that, you can add his position as an editor in Tidal since 2020. So as you can see, my guest is very multi-talented and has tipped his toes in many areas in the music industry, which is why I'm very, very excited to share with you our conversation. Enjoy. Oh, and a quick reminder. If you enjoy our podcast, you can like, share, give us a thumbs up or five stars, send to friends, etc., etc. That is really going to help us fight the algorithms and reach more people. You can also follow us on Instagram at WeAreStereoFox or join our Discord server and get to meet the team and a thousand other artists and music fans. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So good. Just a dis quick disclaimer. I have the puppy here with me. Uh, not sure how he's going to behave. He's sleeping right now. What, what kind of breed is your? Is it it's, uh, have, have you ever heard of a, a breed called Maltipoo? It's a Malteser uh, poodle mix. Okay. Never heard of it, but I'm going to check so, it out. Uh, very good for people who struggle with allergies. Um, mm -hmm. the, the dog just doesn't lose any hair. Uh, is it is it a short hair as well? No, no, very okay. Unique. Just doesn't like look. a plush toy. <laughs> okay, awesome, uh, awesome, Philip. Um, it's uh, such a pleasure and honor to have you on the on the podcast. I I know of you 
for quite some time and i'm very very excited that we can just get to talk about uh, different stuff today thank you love being here it's uh it's uh, it's my it's my first podcast interview in english so okay we'll see how that well, goes <laughs> awesome uh my germany even though i live in berlin for eight years i i don't think i can do a podcast in german it's uh it's difficult so far I always, uh, because I'm always doing the intro, etc. but I always like to start with a non-music related question. Mm -hmm. um, and for you is, first of all, because I th I think you like hip basketball a lot, mm -hmm. if I'm not I mistaken, uh, during my research. And also like the close connection between hip hop and basketball. So first of all, which is your favorite team? And what are, what are your predictions for the next season? Mm, difficult, difficult. <laughs> especially since the off season just really started with all the trading going on. Um, so my favorite, like, I don't have, I don't really have a, a favorite player or favorite team, but I like, I really do enjoy the modern style of basketball. I, I love the Steph Curry's and Clay Thompson's mm -hmm. the, uh, fast, fast play shooting a lot. Um, and I, I always seem to prefer the hardworking teams that really, you know, bust their behinds to get it done. Um, and I, even back when Michael Jordan was playing or now LeBron James, these are s such s like superhuman beings, almost mm -hmm. like Robocop walking through yeah, there, like nobody can touch them. And that always felt like I, I admire these people and they're, they're, they definitely changed the game, but I, I've always been with the, with the underdogs and, you know, try and try to make it happen and root, root for the little guys. You already gave me so many segues to the next <laughs> kind of discussion, but I, I have to say this, um, and I quote from Jets.de, the hardest working man in German hip hop music. Oh yeah, um, uh, I'm not sure if they still would give, give it to me because that, that's a while ago, but- um, But still. I've, yeah, I don't know. I've, I think it just, it just stems from doing so many multiple things that somehow are connected, but not mm -hmm. necessarily the same thing whether it's being a DJ and then a person on the radio and then managing artists back then it's like, it goes hand in hand, but it's still different jobs at the end of the day. And I think that's what they were referring to because I was just, you know, wearing so many hats at the same time. Are you the kind of person who likes to work on a multiple things at the same time or more like you focus on one thing and when it's done, it's done. My, my wife would say I'm horrible at doing multiple things at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, no, I think I, I think since all of these things are somehow connected to music and artistry, it's just a natural element of joy that's instilled in there. And whether mm -hmm. I'm like switching in between these gigs that I that I hold and have held has always been the reason why I could do it for such a long time, maybe because it never got boring. Like maybe I was on tour with the rapper for three weeks, four weeks straight, then come back home. Of course you miss touring and you miss the, the daily adrenaline rush when get going on stage, but mm -hmm. then you're back home and you can focus on other things like doing radio shows or starting to play clubs again, which is totally different than being on stage with an artist. And I think the, the constant change has, has been the, the reason why I'm still here. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that's the reason, yeah. Is it is it easy for you to balance between those different things? I saw in your Instagram, you posted, I think last year, about the importance of mental health, which is a obviously a big topic in the last few years. 
And uh, does it help actually switching? Let's say if you get tired from one thing to switch to another and change the context in terms of balancing out or you balance more by doing other things which are non-music related? I do very little things that are not music related. <laughs> okay, so, so you're like me. That's just, that's just my choice, you know. Um, I, well, there's, there's levels to that. I would say, yes, I'm in a very privileged situation where I could turn my passion into my job, actually. Mm -hmm. And balance comes from juggling these things at the same time and being able to, to be like, hey, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to play clubs for the next six months, um, mm -hmm. and focus on other things. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I, again, that's a super privileged state that I'm in and I've always been in. Um, it comes with pros and cons because that also means that I've been, um, self-employed and my own business for pretty much all my life, mm -hmm. but it, it comes with a lot of, a lot of freedom and other aspects as well. And I think when it comes to the whole mental health thing, I would say it definitely helps um, just being, again, pros and cons. It, it helps being able to dictate your own schedule. At the same time, there's a different layer of pressure that's being applied on you when you are the sole reason, like the, the, sole, the sole source of money coming in, into your household. Um, success, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, it's it really depends on the on the individual that's that's doing these things. But the whole mental health thing is uh, because I really do think it's great that the issue has become more of a forefront topic for for many companies, but also news outlets. And I think it's important to not only accept that mental health is just as important, if not more than any other aspects of our health. And nobody wants to walk around with a broken foot. So why would we walk around with a constant broken heart or broken mm -hmm. soul? Yeah. To put it that way. But also I think it's extremely, it's, I think it's even more maybe important within the artist community where so many people put their heart and soul into their artistry. And for many, it's just an, soul but also at the same time perfect outlet to express and deal with feelings that they feel you know deeply inside of them mm -hmm. and i think um i think it's important to acknowledge that that artists um can go through a lot the challenges of being i don't know a 15 year old superstar that has the whole world screaming for them is a burden that's almost impossible to 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 deal with like how do you deal with that you're not even a grown-up you don't have you don't you didn't have the chance to see the world yet but at the same time everybody expecting so much of you and you're supposed to be a role model 24 7 but when you're a 15 year old teenager you don't i don't know if it's necessarily a good thing to always be a role model like you have to experience the world and find out what's right for you, but you can't. And I think um, I, and I, there's plenty of songs being made about um, being the sad clown, you know, being a superstar on stage and going home when everything is lonely and boring and depressing. And I think that applies to much more people than we would tend to think. I, I recently saw the, the Elvis, the latest Elvis movie, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of like a biopic. And uh, I, even though I knew the story and how his life was, 
I don't know if you've seen it, but it's I think it's a great depiction of what happened after the show and how he did like tens of tens of shows in Las Vegas, for example, in five years. And then he yeah. goes in the room and he's just all alone. Yeah. But going back to, to what you said about this topic, especially for someone like you, who was already actively touring and performing in the early 2000s around the other tour back then, I guess, um, and maybe you can tell me because there was not so much social media. The mobile phones were were not obviously that prominent. Did you did you feel more freedom, so to say? Because now, as you say, like a 15 year old star can pick up the phone and post to seven million people. But I guess you couldn't do that very easily 20 years ago. Do you think that is one of the things that is adding pressure to to the current system that you have to be always online and on top of things? I think the internet and social media is a beast of its own. It can do so many great things, but it can do horrible things at the same time. And it just, it it's kind of like alcohol. When you're a mean person, more alcohol makes you only a meaner person. And if you're a good person, alcohol might turn you into funny, you know, that, that's not always the case for everybody, but that's just an example, you know? And I think, I think social media can help in so many good ways, but it can also put so much unnecessary pressure on people, especially young people. And uh, I think it's it's um, it's a demon that has to be dealt with. Um, and huh, I don't know if times were easier back then. It's it's almost impossible for me to say. I would mm -hmm. I did just turn 20 back then. I I kind of like the first half of my youth. I kind of grew up without the internet, and all we had was cable TV, and everything was coming from there. And the other half, like ever since I turned maybe 15, 16, I had a, I had a cell phone, I had internet pretty soon. So there was this whole online world to be explored. And um, I mean, I was, I was one of the kids, you know, hanging on Napster doing stuff that shouldn't be talked about today. Maybe yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I remember those days I caught them and as well. did it. And it was like, it, it was yeah it was piracy and it was it was the wrong thing to do and it's like i said it's 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 impossible for me to say whether it's it's a better time for artists now i think it's different mm -hmm. it has its own pros and cons you can i think you can become a superstar a lot faster these days and mm -hmm. maybe easier but it comes with its own toll you know um mm -hmm. and back then you would have to you know work the old school machinery probably major label, probably a lot of touring, um, physical copies, uh, mm -hmm. print press, the, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. And pretty much none of that is left anymore. You know, um, that's, that's pretty crazy. So it's, it's, it's only two decades ago, but it's, it's a completely different program. Was it for you, the, the dawn of the internet, what started the DJing process? Because if we kind of put the Philip timeline, timeline, I guess yeah. you were first DJing, uh, that's what you got the, prom the more prominent gigs and you were live DJ touring. And that's when you decided, uh, is that when you decided to also create a company? Like how, for, going back to my first question. Yeah. When did you, and why did you decide to start DJing, especially at such an early age? Um, here's, a, here's a fun fact. I never wanted to be a DJ. <laughs> I just ended up being one. Um, so I, I was one of the kids that, uh, one of the latchkey kids that went home after school at, one or two in the afternoon. My mom was working three, four jobs at the same time at times. Okay. So I just stayed at home in the afternoon and I opened up a box of cornflakes and hung out in front of MTV 
watching okay. TV raps and Ray Cokes and uh, whatever was on, you know. Um, and I fell in love with hip hop culture. But back then, as a, as a 13, 14 year old kid, I didn't have the money to, to buy all these records or CDs. So I was just, I got myself a little aux cable um, and taped all the stuff off of MTV um, just to have- Onto a tape or? Yeah, cassette tape. Okay. Yeah, and, and back then, not even, not even every TV set had, an, had, an, had a headphone out, you know, where you could just plug in an aux cable and record it to your tape deck. So that's what I did, recording all of my favorite songs off of Yom TV raps. And then starting little mixtapes, not in a DJ sense, but just, you know, mixed songs, uh, do little mixtapes just for my personal pleasure. And, you know, I would play the hell out of them on my way to school and back. And then started dubbing them for my friends because they they thought I had a good taste when it come, comes to music. And then they wanted to get a copy of the, uh, of, of the music. And to make a long story short, I turned like pretty quickly i turned into a music lover i just fell in love with so much music that was on the radio and on tv and i every little money that i made um from working after after school was uh i, I put all of that money into buying a big stereo um mm-hmm. to be able to buy cds um and uh when i started going to clubs at age 16 um was in, that the legal age for for Germany back then? No, don't tell me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, well, you, you could you could go to bars, you could go to certain events and some clubs, but certainly not the ones that I was in. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, but I, but I think I like I, we had a few older friends and we just started going to clubs and parties and, and events, and then I, I my CD collection at that point was big. Like I went to the local record store twice a week, three times a week, just to hang out and see whatever was a fresh release, the new Ice mm-hmm. Cube, the new, whatever was hot back then, Mary J. Blige, Brandy, um, whatever came out, I was into it. And I was just, you know, sitting in a CD store and just playing playing the stuff and listening to it and eventually buying it. So I was on point when it came to new releases. I knew pretty much everything. Like what, whatever was on the radio, I already knew it. Then I started going to clubs and all of a sudden the DJ had remixes and versions that I never heard of. And I was like, mm-hmm. God damn, where do I get this song? And then one of my, uh, the, the older brother for, of uh, one of my friends, he was like, yeah, there's this DJ record store. I go there next week. You can just come along and they have a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that the DJs play in the clubs. And we went there and I immediately found stuff that I, that I heard at the club. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm starting to buy vinyl records, something that I haven't done before. So that was the first time. That was the first time. Yeah. And it was purely out of, I want to have this song that I heard at the club the other night. Mm-hmm. And then I started like instead of instead of going to the CD store two three times a week, I started going to the record store because they had stuff even earlier. Mm-hmm. And I hung out. I eventually helped them if the because the the record store owner was a DJ himself, and he was like, "Hey, uh, I'm I'm going over to the I don't know to the uh, restaurant or supermarket. Um, can you can you just stay in the store for me for like ten minutes? I'll be right back." And I was in there. I wasn't really doing anything, but they trusted me. And at some point, they just approached me and told me, "Hey, do you know so much about music, especially current music? Like, you know everything about the new hip hop that's coming out? Have you ever considered DJing?" I was like, "No, I don't want to be a DJ because I'm just not a. I'm just. I never wanted to be the center of attention. I'm just not mm-hmm. a limelight person." And um, they're like, yeah, come on, dude, just open up for me. And um, I eventually agreed. 
and decided to open up. And it was my first DJ gig ever at the legendary spot called Funkadelic in downtown Frankfurt. It's not around anymore, but it used to be one of the most legendary clubs in the city with Prince playing after show uh, parties there and stuff like that. So it's, it's really, it's an insane place. And I went in there and I, I practiced the hell out of my set at home, but it's, it's like a totally different experience when you go to the club and you hear the big speakers and all of a sudden there's a kick drum and a bass that you never heard before. Um, yeah. Like, what is that doing there? <laughs> yeah. Like, Whoa, that bass is loud. All of a sudden that bass is loud. And um, I totally bombed. It was horrible. I was so embarrassed of myself. <laughs> Because I, I couldn't manage to get anything done. I was like, hey, thank you for the invite. Uh, thank you for letting me open up. But I'm never gonna I'm, I'm never gonna do this again. You let me go home, practice, and I'll let you know when I'm ready. Okay. That's exactly what it did. And a year later, I came back and I was like, hey, whenever you got an, another chance for me to open up, I'm here. And the second gig I played was pretty decent, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, do you and still remember them well in your like the experience or at least the yeah it's um the first one i only remember i remember playing a couple of records and messing up almost every single transition like it was so <laughs> difficult for me to concentrate on the transitions to to have mm -hmm. them being really in sync um because of the the pure volume at the club everything was so loud i wasn't i wasn't used to that and the second gig was more like um, it was more people there and it, the transition were, transitions were okay. I think the, the issue with the second gig was a missing experience, like which record to play at what time. And I did play a couple of records that only I liked, I think. <laughs> and I didn't really necessarily play for the crowd, but that, mm -hmm. that stuff comes with experience and just, you know, putting the effort and the years into it. Yeah. Like reading the room and yeah, is it? Is it more, is it easier um, as someone who is not doing that? Is it easier when you were uh, DJing for, let's say, a specific tour and knowing what kind of audience you can expect than going to the club and you're not sure who showed up, right? Because mm. if you DJ for, for an artist, you kind of can guess what music people are into. Is it easier or? It, it's, well, it's very different. Um, when DJing for an artist, like I never did any opening sets for artists. Like, I, yeah, I did that too. But when we talk about me DJing for artists, it's more like I'm playing their instrumentals to rap on. Okay. Yeah. So okay. there's a fixed set list, um, unless there's some last minute changes coming in, but there's a fixed set list. I know what song we're going to open up with. Most of the times we, we were the headliners. So we, we know like pretty much everybody in the crowd was here for us and for nothing else. So as far as selection and, and the actual performance comes, it's easier because everything is pre-planned. Mm -hmm. um, what still is a little stressful to this very day is the pure fact that if you're um, providing the, the, the playback for an artist or maybe even an additional band that's playing you know, on top of your instrumentals, Mm -hmm. um, it's the pure fact that you know there's five, six, seven, maybe ten or more guys relying on what you do. So let's say yeah. your record skips, everybody's messed up. Okay. You no, know, that's and that's kind of an extra pressure. Like if if I play alone at a club and the record skips or the, the you know something happens with the mixer or the sound, uh, I'll just fix it. You know, but yeah. it's not like there's the superstar rapper right next to me who's all of a sudden is out of sync. 
so so that's but but other than that i think i think playing a great set in a club and especially if you go from club to club on a nightly basis dealing with the sometimes totally different audience and totally different settings is a lot more difficult and takes way more experience mm -hmm. you you still dj often these days or It's, well it was impossible to do during the pandemic Uh, especially in Germany, where everything was locked down for a pretty long time, almost, I think, exactly two years. Yeah. And it's starting to come back, but I don't really, I don't really uh, chase it like I used to do. I mean, okay. and that's the whole, the whole transition when I started joining uh, Tidal in the summer mm -hmm. of 2020, because I, um, I just simply wasn't able to do, to do DJing. And um the opportunity came along and I was like, yeah, that sounds perfect for me. Uh, it's just another way to do what I love doing, which is create music for people to hopefully enjoy it, whether it's, you know, putting together mixes or putting on records at the club or radio shows, mixtapes. It's pretty much all the same approach. I think about what record from the collection that I love personally, would I play for this audience in hopes to get them engaged. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a modern day mixtape as you did back in the day. Yeah, yeah, pretty much so. The transition was super easy. It's it, but with the whole like even with the even with the the approach that I don't even when I curate playlists on title, I don't recommend music that I think is shitty. Yeah. There's yeah. so much great music to pick from. There's so many amazing artists and amazing songs. And I try to offer you know, art that's, that's simply incredible and breathtaking. And there's so much mm -hmm. of that out there. Speaking of, of your title journey, we have a internal discourse for Stereofox and we have like around a thousand people. So I tend to announce just the day or two before I record a podcast. So I mentioned that I'll be recording with you. And sometimes like actually always people kind of send me some questions and obviously I love them relate to the curation of a title. Mm -hmm. Uh, so first I want to ask you, do, do you ever feel overwhelmed with the amount of music you receive? Because I, I imagine you, you guys, the whole team needs to stay on top of the playlists and you need to update them quite frequently. Yeah. I mean, do I get overwhelmed? I would say no, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's a lot of music, especially in the, in the hip hop genres. Um, there's so much stuff coming out, but At, at, at the same time, there's so many amazing voices to be discovered and to be heard. And of course, amazing voices that already are superstars. Mm -hmm. um, so there's every single week that I'm going through the music, there's a dozen of records that I'm really excited about for one or the other reason. But yeah, of course, I mean, if, if it's the week before Christmas and everybody who's still <laughs> like last chance wants to drop a single, yeah, it, it's a lot. And okay. I mean, We, we as editors also, you know, are anticipating Christmas and have families to take care of. So it's, it's a hectic <laughs> week. It's a hectic week, but it's a hectic week with amazing music. And I come from a family that's um, where a lot of, a lot of the uh, family members have been hardworking, doing mm -hmm. crazy jobs. So I would never complain about this being a super hard job. Like I'm here getting paid to listen to amazing music. Like, I'm not going to complain about that. So yeah, it's a lot of music at times, but it's still, man, that's like, it's like, like Anthony Bourdain traveling through the greatest restaurants in the world and complaining about having the next amazing steak. 
is there another kind of question that came up is there something you would advise uh, up and coming slash independent artists they need to do or they can do better especially if they want to get their music um, more in in front of the eyes or ears of the title editors like is social media important uh, like having a bio an image or is it mostly about the music um it's yeah any piece of advice for especially like independent up-and-coming artists who want to be more prominent yeah that that's the question that always comes and i i mean there's so many editors among us um i can only speak for myself because i think there's totally different approaches to that and mm-hmm. it, it really depends on region and territory because my my um, amazing colleague in Denmark for example has a much smaller region and a, you know a smaller amount of artists to cover and and go through than than um, the colleagues in the US UK or mm-hmm. Germany France you know um, so there's there's a lot of different approaches I would say and I, I kind of keep it the same way I do with my DJing stuff and I did with the DJing stuff, you know, in the, in the last two decades is I'm, I take a lot of pride in finding new artists that hasn't changed. That was something that I wanted to do as a DJ and I'm still doing it, doing it as a curator. I really do want to find this next amazing rapper or R&B singer or even pop star, whatever, you know, the, the lo-fi beat kid from Tanzania that has the banging beats. I do take pride in that. And I want, I, that's the way it started. I told you, I was I was recording these tapes at home and I was going back to school. I was like, hey, there's a new Biggie song that played on the Omchi Raps yesterday. You have to hear it. And I'm such an advocator for new artists or new music that I still love doing that. And um, that means I kind of have like my, my, uh, my sensors out there to find new stuff and new artists. I'm not taking i'm not putting any any time aside to to just go through three hours of soundcloud digging or whatever i don't yeah. really do that i hang out on all platforms but most of the times music comes to me kind of that's because mm-hmm. of my network of artists and people who work in the industry and music lovers and whenever they post something and it's an artist i never heard about that mm-hmm. that's what makes me interesting because I was like, Hey, this is my close friend. He has such an amazing taste. Why does he post about an artist that I've never heard of before? There must be something to it. And then I start going into it and, you know, mm-hmm. going through the look. Uh, first thing I do is go, go back on the title platform, see if they have um, released anything. Then uh, as you know, the, the uh, title platform, you know, gives you all of the credits. You can see who's producing them, what record label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On. It's actually and, very uh, extensive, which I is, appreciate yeah. a lot about title. And that's that's that caters so much to my heart of, of a DJ that just you know used to flip the flip the vinyl record cover and go through the credits and be like oh yeah Dark Child produced this wow this must be insane mm-hmm. um, so this is pretty much the same approach it hasn't changed it's just all digital now and I uh, um, I'd say like if I had to put out a recommendation for for rising artists how to get on the radar of of curators I would say do an all-over approach. I, I think music lovers, wherever they come from or wherever they may be, tend to appreciate the high-quality approach. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of artists these days kind of kind of shy away from being too artsy, but I, I think the few ones that st- that stand out are usually the ones that are being artsy. Like who do we talk about? The Kendrick Lamar's, the Anderson Packs, the ones yeah. that aren't doing popcorn music. Like yeah. no, no, um, 
how do I say this? I, I don't want to talk down on anybody doing just straight pop music because straight pop music is, you know, totally legitimate as well. Um, but I think the the so-called feuilleton artists that kind of get a lot of high quality press in their early days, I, I think that's a good approach to just make people's heads turn, you know? And th that's, a, that's why I think this, this kind of music will come to me and to a lot of other editors, editors as well. And you just have to be willing to, to accept that there's a new wave or, or a new style, new genre coming in. And you have to be, have to be excited about it. And uh, to take it back to DJing, I think people like Jazzy Jeff, who is, you know, 50 plus as well right now, is still like these people are still super relevant because they never stopped loving new music. They still play the old classics, but they still find the new gems within the next generation. And that's, I think, the one of many right approaches. And that's the one that I'm taking as well. Yeah, I think the evolution is really important. Like if 10 years ago, when I when I started Stereofox, the genres we covered initially was a lot of post-rock and indie rock. And as they go into more hip-hop instrumental hip-hop, that evolved. And mm -hmm. sometimes people are like, oh, but back in the days, you were just about this. I was like, yeah, but things are evolving and changing. And I, you cannot cover the, an artist who is even not active anymore. So that's right. Uh, yeah, it's it's you, you got to be open to the new stuff and especially the fusion of genres, which is mm -hmm. insane these days. Yeah, big thing right now. Absolutely. When I think back, there has never been an era where I liked every single genre and subgenre that was out. Like even within hip hop, there was a time when I did not understand certain styles and certain movements. Sometimes I understood them like 10, 15 years later. And some, some of the styles and artistic approaches, I haven't understood to this very day. Like mm -hmm. I, I simply don't get why this is a thing, but that's mm -hmm. totally fine. Like I don't have to love everything because there's so much stuff out there that, that I, I there's, there's, you know, it's easy to pick 20, 50, 100 songs that came out just this year that are just mind blowing. And you don't like, and there's there's a change coming. There's a new era coming right now. The, the genre melting is a big thing, even in, in Germany, German hip hop. All, all of a sudden, a lot of the new hip hop leaning artists experiment mm -hmm. a lot with pop and rock elements. And it's like, hey, you take a regular 808 drum beat, but have a, but you have like an, an, a heavy rock riff guitar on there. And the singing is very rock style, like like a 90s grunge performance. Yeah. And it's like, wow, this is supposed to be a hip hop record. Well, I'm who am I to judge? But at the end of the day, it's the most important thing is, is it a great song or not? And I think every time a new genre emerges, it's hard for people like me to put it into a box, but we don't have to. Mm -hmm. We just don't have to. Eventually, time will tell what the genre is going to be called. You know, I think when the first grunge song was made, people didn't call it grunge. They just made rock music for themselves. For sure. Yeah, like exactly. Three, three, four years later, when it was a big thing, people started calling it grunge and everybody was like, okay, let's call it grunge. And then, you know, that's just what happens. But that's like the whole bureaucracy behind it. I don't even care too much about that. For mm -hmm. me, it's mostly about, is it a great song? And I, I, I think second and third thoughts are kind of like what culture, what genre, what scene is it coming from? And does it cater back to that culture? Is, is it, you know, a relevant thing? Where does it have its roots? 
And third thing, maybe being, is it something that's having an, an impact, whether intellectual or emotional, on e either pop culture or that mm -hmm. particular scene by itself? It's interesting you mentioned grunge. Uh, I, I listen to, I still listen to actually the, to grunge to this day. But for me, it's one of those genres that for me, it's always going to stay in the late 80s, early 90s. And as a genre, it's going to stay there. But the impact of that genre, you can still feel it in today's music. Even though if you ask me, name one grunge band now, I don't think maybe there is, but mm. I'm always going to stay with the Pearl Jam, kind of like, you know, Temple of the Dog. But yeah, I was going to revert back to, to the curation thing because uh, like I use all platforms. And uh, one of the things I, I like and I do, especially when I get confused about genre for title on the Discover homepage, I like that you have the, so there's two things I like. You have the genre stuff, but I like that there is the, the situational thing, like hip hop cooking or mm -hmm. jazz, yeah. jazz cleaning yeah. or something like that. That's the one thing I really, really enjoy. And the other thing is the rising um, playlists, which I think is, is super cool because you have in multiple genres like R&B, hip hop, electronic, uh, reggaeton, which is not something I listen to, but yeah. um, do you, are those play it seems those playlists are very carefully catered or uh, curated mm -hmm. based on like a kind of curators voting or, or they seem very very well researched right it's not about are you signed on a major label or not it's more like is this new artist promising or not am i am i correct yeah absolutely yeah i think the um the whole rising segment of title has always been a super big thing and i think it will only get bigger um, as time goes by because um, like I said, there's a lot of people that take a lot of pride in finding these new voices and helping to make them get heard. Um, and there's even more playlists that might not be labeled as rising, but you know, serve the same purpose. Uh, for example, there's no Rise, there's a rising Germany playlist that has um, artists Deutsch from R&B, I think. Huh? Which the the rising Deutsch R&B, which I realized there are some also non-German artists on there. Yeah, but the, um, yeah, to answer that real quick, it's uh, there are some non-German speaking or singing artists in there, yeah. but these are German-based artists or people like that you know were born and raised in Germany. So yeah. we. We wanted to help them as well and put them in there, but it's uh, yeah the the German um, no sorry the title rising Germany playlist uh, does feature a lot of artists from different genres. It does not feature hip hop simply because there's so many um, great rising hip hop artists, and we have a dedicated playlist for that as well, mm -hmm. which is not labeled title rising, but it's called uh, title rap revolution, um, mm -hmm. which stands for you know the the, the evolution and revolution of, of German hip hop. Um, and that's just straight, straight German rap stuff with uh, rising artists and uh, progressive approaches to music. Um, so there's there's even more rising than all the stuff that's already been labeled as rising. But like I said, Title has always been dedicated to helping helping artists. And now, ever since we joined, you know, the uh, Block Corporation, and formerly known as Square. Uh, a company that has traditionally been focused on helping, you know, small businesses and uh, entrepreneurs. It's just a perfect match because at the end of the day, and even more so at the beginning of each day, artists and especially rising artists are 
small businesses and entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's a great match and hopefully with the playlists and, and a lot more things to come, we're able to help artists even better. Speaking of the supporting artists, you guys, well, Tidal launched the, the direct to fund the new program, which mm -hmm. part of your subscription goes directly to, to specific artists. Right. That I, I think at least externally, the reception has been quite good. Any, what is your thoughts on that? Was it something you knew was coming? Was it more like interconnection between uh, Block uh, and Tidal merger or was it already in the plans? And uh, do you plan on, I think it's the first one that is doing this, that allows fans to directly pay to, to artists, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, directly, indirectly, it's not the fans directly paying the artists, but it's paying from your subscription through a percentage of the subscription. Exactly. Um, well, I mean, at some point, obviously we've been involved in process, but I like, of course that wasn't my personal idea. So I, I can't really speak on anything that's been planned before I ever heard about it. I think a progressive approach on, on these issues has been at the core of the title values for a long time. And it's only been accelerated through, um, through the, the acquisition by block because of the values that I just mentioned um, before it's, almost like a natural thing to advocate for these issues. And uh, the direct artist payouts is a very progressive stance, I think. I think it's a great initi initiative. And, uh, you know, how do I say this? It's people understand the, the revolutionary approach that the company is taking by that because there's a reason for why it hasn't been around for much longer. It's because it's not easy to implement these things. And I think the, the title core and the, the leadership at title did a great thing to making it happen. And I think it helps rising artists, but the whole artist community in a tremendous way. Do you think the, obviously there is a speaking to of uh, physical products. Do you think that's going to return? Like obviously vinyls are on the rise. And I heard cassette tapes are also on the rise, which I haven't seen, but people are saying so. Do you think that's also like something that is really gonna, it's gonna go back to after this huge boom of streaming in the last 10 years, would people go back to actually buying more, whether it's a CD or vinyl or cassette tape, does it matter? I, I think it's super hard to tell uh, right now. I think it's super, funny and interesting at the same time to see how physical products are coming back. I, I can't really tell, like as a person that has like 15,000 pieces of vinyl sitting in the basement, right? Okay. I okay. have a hard time of understanding why kids all of a sudden start buying, starting to buy vinyl again. And I think it has something to do with, a being something like a super fan, like being a super proud owner of something special that might as well be limited to a certain uh, number of copies. Then the fact that you can put it on shelf and everybody and everybody, like all of your friends and your guests are going to see that you have this limited piece. And it's like memorabilia. It's, it's a mix of, I have something that's limited from my mm -hmm. favorite sports star, maybe a signed Jersey or whatever. It's like having a signed vinyl now I, I'm somewhat af afraid to find out that the rise of cassette tapes might only be because um, people cannot press up vinyl quickly enough because there's only a few manufacturers these days. And just if you want to do a vinyl next week, you probably might know, 
uh, if you want to do a vinyl next week, they're going to tell you, yeah, by 2024, we might have a slot for you. Yeah, we, we did our first vinyl last year, June, and it arrived this year in May. See, that, that's exactly so, what I'm saying. So I, I think that might be the reason why people who are into doing physical products for their fans might divert to cassette tapes or maybe even mm -hmm. back to CDs, simply because you'll find someone to do it for you. Whereas when it comes to vinyl, it's, you know, almost impossible to find someone within the next six or eight months. And then I think it's it's it depends on the country because it might be triggered by simple economics. For example, mm -hmm. in Germany, the whole box set thing, which can, um, which can uh, accelerate your chart position uh, is still a big thing. Whereas yeah. you don't need at all in other countries, you know, still to this very day, rappers in Germany put out box sets with t-shirts and stickers and stuff like that. Um, just be to get their fans to spend more money because that'll mean a higher chart position for them. Yeah, that gives them points, right? In the, in the yeah, it's just, it's just being measured by the amount uh, of money that your fans are willing to spend on you within mm -hmm. the, the week that's being um, recorded, you know? So if they, if they spend like 15 bucks on a CD, like they used to do back in the days, or they spend 69 euros on a box set with a t-shirt and whatever limited stuff might be in there. Uh, it's just the equi equivalent of buying four CDs, you know? Yeah. So how do you get your, how do you get your fans to buy four or five CDs? You don't, <laughs> they're just not going to do it. <laughs> you, but you, you can get them um, by, by buying these box sets and that, that helps propel the, the rise of German rap, especially within the 2000s uh, remarkably. Yeah, German, the German hip hop culture in general, and in nowadays as well, the instrument, obviously like hip hop and beats, it's been historically very, very strong. Uh, do you also think that's because, especially in the last few decades, the culture has been, um, there's a lot of people who migrate from abroad and that had an impact of the, of the scene. Like, why do you think the German hip hop and beat scene is so strong now, even like, from the early 2000s and even nowadays with the lo-fi and jazz hop producers, you can see so many good producers, all German. Good question. I think there's there's layers to that. Um, I think the German hip hop scene in general has always been kind of spoon fed by the fact that, by the fact that the American presence within Germany has been at such high numbers, especially in the 80s and 90s. And that's something I think that never really hasn't, has been mentioned or documented, is the fact that the rise of global hip hop, especially in the, in the 90s, would not have been the same if it wasn't for American imperialism and the fact that US soldiers have been all over the world. Mm -hmm. Like kids from Japan to Korea to Germany to Italy, everywhere have fallen in love because at some point, they, they, there have been U.S. soldiers throwing a hip-hop party in their neighborhoods and they got to know hip-hop, the culture behind it, the different musical genres, whether it's hip-hop itself or from reggae to R&B to even Latino music at some point. And that simply would not have been the same if it wasn't for American military being pretty much everywhere in the Western world. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think that that kind of kickstarted the whole German thing, especially in, in my hometown, Frankfurt, where people still argue about whether it was the original birthplace of German hip hop. If it wasn't Frankfurt, it's somewhere in the surroundings, but it's, it's in that area. And then I think what kind of brings us to the lo-fi and producer and beat scene, I, I think what, what kind of helped is the fact that there have been kind of like two scenes evolving at the same time. One was very US orientated, whatever is the, the, the zeitgeist and whatever is the newest thing around. Uh, whether it was New Jack in the 90s or it was it was crunk in the 2000s, like the newest style, the newest flavor was adapted pretty quickly. And then there was this traditionalist scene of sampling and beat making, the people that came from the, the, the SPs and the MPCs and never stopped using these machines. And even though they would not, you know, they would not produce like Pete Rock in 91 anymore. They would still understand what he did. And they would, you know, they would go from Pete Rock to Dilla and then on to high tech and witness the growth of this sample culture. And I think that's a, that's an, a very important root of the whole beat thing because mm -hmm. so many people that I know that do lo-fi or instrumental hip hop releases are actually coming from these kind of, from these kinds of scenes. And I think the pure fact that there was this this um, very up-to-date, whatever's hot right now scene, and at the same time, this puristic scene helped to, to you know, breed these kind of artists that are familiar with all styles. And they can, they can go from an Anderson Pack beat to a Cardi B beat within a second, because there's, you know, such skilled um, individuals on, on every single level. Actually, yeah, never, never thought about it. The, the, the presence of military bases. Going back to to what you said, and then these two scenes. I just always knew since I, I moved to Berlin. Uh, I, actually, that's overlapped with my kind of going to hip hop and beats, because uh, I used to ha I, I hang out a lot around HHV the store. Yeah, there's always hip hop and beats events there, and I I quickly realized, wow, this music is so popular here. Let me check out and explore it more. And I've always like spoken to some local artists and also some international people. And when they hear Germany, like, oh yeah, the scene there is so strong. Um, I th I th and I think it's, we are kind of, as I said, at least I feel privileged being around and getting to, to, to experience so much different sounds as well. The history of Germany kind of plays its own part in there with the country being split up. And it's not only split up, like musically, it's not only split up in East and West. It's also split up in North and South. And that's something that most people don't realize because all the way up to Frankfurt and maybe like 50 or 60 kilometers more North from like from Frankfurt, it was all American military and American presence, cultural presence, whether it be movies, cinemas, events, parties, it, it could be a, a garage sale um, or a barbecue. It was a mix of German culture and whatever immigrant kids we had, Turkish, Italian, you know, Yugoslavian, whatever. And, um, and of course, it was, there was always a, an American cultural presence around. If you go to Eastern Germany, you don't have the American presence. You have more of a Russian presence, but yeah. that wasn't really adapted that much. And if you go north of Frankfurt, you have British and French presence from the military they sent over. So, for example... If you remember the, the, the rap subgenre Britcore, which came in the late 80s, early 90s, that was a big thing in Hamburg because of British military being there. 
There was no thing at all in Frankfurt, Stuttgart, or Munich. And vice versa with New Jack, for example. New Jack Swing mm -hmm. just simply wasn't that big in Hamburg or Cologne. So there's this cultural differences that can easily be explained by not only, but you know, mostly explained by a military presence and cultural presence of these people. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't the it wasn't the freaking machine gun that brought hip hop here. It was it was great-minded people that brought hip hop here. Yeah. And um, it's uh, it's the fact that these people have taken their culture overseas and tried to you know continue to live it as good as they possibly could. And it just had a huge impact on, on German kids like me. Do, what, what do you think, speaking of the new wave of not just hip hop, but genres, is the most impactful thing on the, especially on the young producers and kids nowadays in Germany? On producer kids, I would say the mix of genres that we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that the fact that this new generation did not grow up on the same genre categories that we got accustomed to, um, mm -hmm. that learned to kind of work with and they yeah. leave it all behind. And that's a beautiful thing. I think it makes, it, I, I, I don't think it makes music better or worse. It's just a different approach and it's a more diverse approach. And other than that, I would say it's the quick rise of K-pop mm -hmm especially for the fact that um, K-pop has been a thing in Korea for 20 years now, at least. Um, also considering the fact that J-pop has been around even 10 years longer and didn't have the global breakthrough that K-pop now has. Maybe blame it on the internet, question mark. And the, the other, like, you cannot ignore the fact that Latino music, not only reggaeton, but so many other subgenres and genres of, of amazing Latino music, Latin X music is um, it's still growing at such an incredible rate. Like the, the, this whole world of music that's kind of been hidden away, especially in Western Europe, unless you go to Spain, it's, it's there and it's emerging and it's asking for its rightfully deserved spot on the map of, of music. And I, I think there's an incredible and beautiful mix that's coming upon us within the next couple of years, where all of a sudden South America, Latin America, and um, you know, East Asia is having a huge impact on pop culture. Something we as Western Europeans or you know British people or US people might have to get used to, but I promise you it's gonna be beautiful. Yeah, speaking of Latin music, what I find is that, um, and I think one of the reasons why it's growing, because you can ignore this fact, whether you listen or not, especially as someone curating, and I might be wrong, but for me, the rhythm and the feel of Latin music can easily be incorporated in hip hop beats, in pop beats, and that's one of the reasons why it's also kind of splashing over other genres and it's becoming so popular. What, what I do find very peculiar and I still don't have a kind of suggestion why is indeed the rise of K-pop. The only thing I can come up is the the culture overall, like the, the Korean culture, whether that's movies and, and series. But besides this, I've had a hard time explaining why it suddenly blew up so much. Because for some people, oh, this this new genre that came up, and I always say it's not a new genre. It's, <laughs> they've been doing this kind of music for a while. Yeah. Um 
well, as far as K-pop goes, I think it's almost difficult these days to still call it K-pop because it's just so many different genres labeled as one. Because there's Korean rappers, there's Korean R&B singers, there's straight pop artists, there's EDM artists, but we all label it as a K-pop because it's a Korean person performing it. Like, I'm not 100% an expert on that, but I've, I did get my chances in life to interact with Korean culture a lot. So there's a couple of things that I would mention. One is that the Korean music industry, as flawed as it may be in certain parts, is perfectionism and is, is an, an insane machinery of just building stars and finding the greatest songs on earth. Um, just as much as Rihanna's team and her management, or, or I don't know, Dua Lipa's team might be looking for the greatest songs written all over the world. These K-pop stars are doing the same thing. They get the greatest song submissions from songwriters and producers from all over the world. And they pick amazing stuff. And they know, like they, they really, got the math right when it comes to to creating a hit, hit record. Um, and it goes not only for, for producing songs, but also for promoting artists and building artists and finding new talent and all that stuff. So it's an insane machinery driven by an even insaner amount of perfectionism. And then there's this whole, whole cultural thing. Um, I think people underestimate the Korean diaspora all over the world. Like in my area in Frankfurt alone, there's at least 30,000 people of Korean descent or Korean families. And the fact that Korean technology, whether it be Samsung or Hyundai or um, Daewoo and so many other companies are market leading entities in, 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 in pretty much all countries these days. Mm. Um, also mean there's, there's people and in, in families that work for these companies of Korean descent that are being sent all over the world. So similar to Latinos being everywhere or Filipino people being everywhere, there's Korean people pretty much everywhere. And it's not surprising at all that, that BTS can sell out Madison Square Garden within an hour. Of course, there's, I don't know how many people of Korean descent being uh, in, in the New York City tri-set area. And with that being said, and, and taking it back to what we earlier said, the cultural influence that diasporas have, you know, if you if you grow up in Berlin among Turkish kids, you're gonna adapt and eventually fall in love with Turkish culture and Turkish music at some point, you know. Yeah, Even if you don't fall in love, but then there's this one song that the mom of your Turkish friend was always playing, and you hear it, and you you you'll you know immediately be taken back to that to that instance back then. So. You have the 30,000 Korean kids and families in the Frankfurt area, but they have friends from all over the world. And they were like, oh, yeah, you're going to BTS? Yeah, I'm going as well. That Because, I, I, you know, and then this whole thing spreads. So it's not surprising at all. It's just a matter of great music and, of course, the machinery behind it. Like, again, artists are businesses and they have to do marketing and stuff like that, promote their music. And if that works, uh, great music from all over the world these days can become... Um, relevant in all markets. Yeah, it's it's really cool when you get exposed to to like a local culture. Personally, when I travel to especially countries outside of Europe, or and, and if I happen to if I manage to to actually meet somebody local, you know, because when you're traveling, it's not always that easy. When you're a tourist, I always try to ask them, okay, give me a few bands that are very hyper local but very famous, and it's 
uh, I've grown to love like for example Cambodian music uh, mm. I spent wow. a month and a half there so yeah yeah I mean the whole African music scene exploded the last couple of years and it, it yeah that's during also... a pandemic right like it's not like artists could actually play shows in Europe or North America but it's just the fact that the music that's being produced is at such an amazing level it's impossible to ignore it's you know, but let me say one thing about uh, about the Latina music because you um, you said something about the beats and and stuff like that. See it from a DJ perspective. You go to a club, and you hear whatever classic song, whether it be a rock song from the '80s or an R&B song from the '90s. I don't know how many times have you heard one of these songs in a what they call mumbaton remix, which is the drum pattern of reggaeton music. Um, why is that? Because it freaking works. It's moving people like hell. Like that groove alone is worth a million bucks because um, it just speaks to, to people on so many levels and it just makes people want to dance. Um, that alone is, is, is so, so essential for reggaeton music. And um, it's, it's a contrib contribution that that just simply can't can't be you know can't be ignored when it comes to the rise of, of Latinx music and and the whole subgenres behind it. There's so much like I remember speaking to a good friend of mine, DJ Cass. He's from Miami, has a Nicaraguan uh, background, um, and he told me he goes back to Nicaragua and plays, of course, mostly or solely Latin music down there. And he came back and told me the next big thing. And it was like ten years ago. Next big thing is going to be. It's gonna be uh, Latino trap, uh, trap in that case, mm. and I was like, "Wow!" Like, like rapping over hard, like mono, monotone beats. And he was like, "Yeah, it's insane!" Like, "Wow!" That yeah, of course. I mean, no brainer. Yeah, why wouldn't they explore other genres that are popular and and use them in their language? Of course. Yeah, per personally, especially I follow like some of the major labels and even some of the mid-tier labels. One thing I realized that all of them are opening offices. Uh, whether that's in Latin America or in Africa, especially in Africa in the last one or two years, you always read on LinkedIn, we're just now opening our office in South Africa or Nigeria or something like that. Yeah. And, this is, and there's a lot of music conferences also happening over there. So for me, that's a clear signal of, uh, okay, the music business is looking into into those regions. Yeah, and same goes for Southeast Asia. I mean, there's universal music sitting in Singapore now. There's Def Jam, Def Jam Philippines. Mm. Um so the the uh, like the fact that these big companies, global companies, are acknowledging the regional scenes um, is a great thing, and it's only gonna make everything more colorful, you know. Because why wouldn't the next pop star, why wouldn't he or she be coming out of Singapore? Yeah, why not? <laughs> I I think this gives a lot of hope to a lot of, especially artists who start now, because a, a while ago at at least the notion was like okay uk and us are the biggest sources of, of the those really big pop stars you know the ones that everybody knows right. massively they were from those two markets and now that is that is changing um so uh, because i have so many questions and i know that time like time is limited but since we're speaking about the music business something that i really want to ask you and that's a whole other uh, like universe about um the company started in 2000 the star, uh, starting oh, lineup, yeah. the, my agency that I run with my business partner, Marcus. Yeah. If you have to summarize, like if, what is the one thing, uh, especially when you work 
with artists. What is the one mantra that you always try to follow in your relationships with artists? Something that's very important for for the success of the of for reaching success in the music industry. Is there mm. something that you always like? I'm not. Th- that's my value, and I'm not gonna change it. Is there something like that, or besides, of course, of always doing clean business and not you know fooling around with other people's money or careers, but that's, you know, that's a no brainer. Um, I think one of the things that we have told people over and over again is we can't be the ones that want it more than you when it comes to success, mm-hmm. when it comes to artistry, like we, if, if we feel that you as an artist, I don't want to call it lazy. Some, some, some people are distracted. Some people are going through writer's block or whatever. And some people just have a hard time promoting their own stuff, which I totally get. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely hard thing to do to, to constantly blow your own horn, you know? Um, but at the end of the day, it's your music and your business. And if we came in as managers or as publishers, we were the ones assisting your business. Um, and we cannot be the ones that want the success more than you. Um, you have to be the driving force. And it's like a, it's almost like a 401k, the, 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 um, the you know, retirement plan in the US. Yeah, in the US yeah. the company offers to pour in just as much as you do. If you pour in $10,000, then the company is throwing, throwing in 10,000 as well. That it's, it's kind of the, the same thing. Like, at, yeah, of course. I mean, there's times when the artist is going through stuff or is too busy on tour or whatever. And, and you on the management side, you know, we worked a lot more hours maybe back then, but it's mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you have to be the one that wants us more than everybody else. Um, that's, that's something we preached over and over again. Other than that, I think if for people who are aspiring music managers or, uh, you know, being, within the support system of an artist, I think the most important thing to know is no artist is the same. It's, um, it's like with uh, your, um, um, it's like with your significant other, like mm. just because you have this experience from last time, it's, it, there might be similar things this time and there might be completely different things. Um, no artist is the same, even if the mu- music might be similar, if the genre is similar, if he's working with the same people, if, uh, you know, if she's playing with the same support band or whatever, it's a different approach and every experience is unique in that way. And you have to kind of, and that goes for, for somebody who has managed uh, several people over the last 15, 20 years. Um, you have to learn to unlearn, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, people are different and approaches have to be different as well. Do you feel the pressure, especially in the early days around the 2000s, did you feel initially the pressure of, okay, this person trust me, trusted me with their music? Um, and like now it's okay, as you said, it's like both parties are responsible for the success. But did you ever feel the pressure of, okay, this person really trusted me, so I have to? really go in on whether that's a nr or like management or publishing was it um, scary back then when you started no because everything was so naive i was i was just out of high school and i was like because um prior to to me joining title in 2020 i 
have never been a full-time employee anywhere. I've always been self-employed doing my own business. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't want to call it pressure. Yeah, it was a pressure at times, but most of the times it was an honor. Like, because the, the only artists we ever worked with was people we were fans of. Like we had to love your music. We never signed, Marcus and me, we have never signed anybody just for cash reasons because we thought this guy is going to make us a billion dollars. Never did that. We could have done that at times, but that was never the approach, never the motivation. It was, it's always been like, hey, have you heard this demo? He sings so amazing. She raps so dope. Um, this guy is an amazing producer. And um, we fell in love with the music and wanted to start a journey together with the artists. Like, kind of like with, with kids, like when they, mm -hmm. Like we signed a lot of artists from like straight demo stage. Like they might not have released a record yet, um, never signed a record deal, never performed on a bigger stage. That's when we picked up a lot of artists. And it's like, okay, we're gonna hold your hand for now and take you through this. We're gonna walk you through this. But understand that at some point when you're becoming a star and you're becoming a professional entrepreneur and musician, at some point you have to take over because you are the powerful person. Everybody's looking at you. Your name is going to be bigger than our name right now is. And that's the point when it's vice versa and you have to take us. We're your support system, but you have to lead. Right now we can lead, but at some point you as an artist have to take the lead and then we'll see what happens. And that's, uh, that's what happened most of the time. And we, we did not manage like, 400 different artists we did manage i would say 10 to 15 maybe over 20 years and it also means that we managed or consulted them um over a longer period of time which is a compliment i think to to what we did like we i don't know if we have any we turned anybody into a millionaire or or superstar but we have taken people from being total strangers and unknown people to grammy nominated individuals to working with the biggest brands, stuff like that. Um, and that's, that's what we're proud of. Like, of course, not everybody can discover the next Ed Sheeran, um, but there's a whole league of exceptionally gifted um, musicians that are not called Ed Sheeran. So cool, man. Like, like there are so many follow-up questions and so like, I like the parallels you're making, like, especially with the holding hands and stuff. And it's super valuable and insightful to be able to, to speak with someone like you with, the, with, the, with your experience. We, we try to follow the same mantra. And it's also like sometimes if we are on the verge of, or should we sign with this person for long term, we always have conversations, not mm -hmm. no chat, no emails, because if there is no, how to say, if there is no vibe, right? you can have the best music, but it's, yeah, it's, and I always thought like, if I'm the management or if I'm an advocate for this person's music, um, I can sell it a lot better if I'm an actual fan of the person and the song. Like I'm simply, maybe there's other people that can do that. I'm simply not good at selling something that I don't really like. Um, and being close to the, to the artist's has always helped to understanding the, the product and the song a lot better, you know, understanding where the whole inspiration and motivation comes from. 
and also helps to to fall in love with the songs and you know being able to take them out and show them to the world awesome philip i have one last question uh it's still music related but it's more like a kind of like generic thing okay uh, because like you know like the world we live in and there's things are changing so much in the industry if you had six months free out of any tasks or responsibilities yeah and you can choose one new thing to learn Ooh. what would that be can be music related can be industry can be not up to you you have six months of complete freedom i i right off the top of my head i would say learning how to play guitar like electric guitar simply because we just moved to this to this new house and my next door neighbor he's a guitar player and has been for decades so sometimes he like when i when i go for grocery shopping on saturday for the family and i come back home he sits out on the um on the stairs in front of the house and plays guitar and it's just so dope and i was like damn there's this there's this one song that i discovered on title when i when i the first week i joined i was like just going through stuff and going through the amazing libraries and if you didn't know title has a playlist curated by prince um which is some of the best kept secret i think uh, that's out there um because he curated it only weeks before his untimely passing um what is the name it's the playlist? called purple pigs it's prince okay, i'm gonna purple. link this i'm gonna link this in the podcast description it's, it's just an amazing piece every, every time I, t- i tell people that hey there's a playlist curated by prince like there you can literally see that their minds blown um but there's this one performance and i recommend going out there and finding it um it's a performance by prince and he brings out chaka khan as a special guest and they perform chaka's uh chaka's huge hit sweet thing um but prince starts the whole performance with a guitar solo and this guitar and i mean we all are you know very familiar with the sound of prince's guitar it's just so freaking good and uh, the le- the whole like the entire last week i was telling myself like if i could ever play guitar just that one song like prince did on that stage that would change my world and i was uh, if i had six months off with nothing else to do no responsibilities whatsoever i would find myself a teacher and start learning to play electric guitar awesome man such a nice end of the conversation once again really thank you so much it was super uh, nice talking to you Uh, thank you thank you for having me thank you